Today on the podcast, we look at the future of the gig economy and find that it's not nearly as rosy as it seemed a few years ago. Our reporter in San Francisco talks about some of the new laws and regulations coming out of the Golden State. And also we hear from the prosecutor who put Bill Cosby behind bars about something they don't teach you in law school, how to manage a trial that's on the front page of every newspaper in the world. She gives the attorneys trying and defending Derek Chauvin some tips. And we also give you an update on the most important news stories happening in the legal world right now. Definitely stay tuned, don't go anywhere. Hello, you're listening to On The Merits, the new legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. Here at On The Merits, we feature the best reporting coming out of the voluminous Bloomberg Law newsroom and tackle the biggest issues in the legal world right now. Today, we'll be looking at the biggest trial happening in the legal world right now. But first, let's take a look at the biggest legal news stories happening this week. The Supreme Court gave Google a big win in its copyright case against Oracle, but the internet search giant wasn't the only one who could benefit. The court ruled yesterday that Google's use of an API that Oracle developed fell under the fair use defense and did not violate Oracle's copyrights. Analysts say this could have ramifications throughout the tech world when it comes to copywriting computer code, but even more broadly than that, the opinion could begin to clarify some of the very confusing rules about what does and doesn't qualify as fair use. Another thing that's clear at the Supreme Court is that the Solicitor General's office definitely no longer has a free pass to argue whenever it wants to. Yesterday, the justices denied the Solicitor General's request to join an argument and represent the government's views before the court. This is the second time in less than a year that the justices rejected this kind of request from the SG. Before that, they hadn't denied a request like this since 2001. A Supreme Court watcher who spoke to Bloomberg Law said this may be the justice's way of sending a message to the SG, telling it to do some more self-regulation and pare back its request to intervene. And now to attorney compensation, half of the top six highest paid executives at the newly merged media conglomerate Viacom CBS were lawyers. The company's general counsel, along with two other attorneys, each received more than $12 million in 2020, according to a corporate filing late last week. The payouts came as the dust is still settling from the merger of the two companies last year, with many of the attorneys who had the largest salaries in 2019 no longer working for the company. And finally, the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin continues this week, with Chauvin's former supervisors at the police department testifying against him. We'll have more on the trial later in the episode, but if you're interested, check out our sister podcast, Uncommon Law, for more day-by-day coverage of the trial. That podcast, once again, is called Uncommon Law. So there was a study back in 2017 that predicted within a decade, the majority of the U.S. workforce would be a freelancer or an independent contractor. The gig economy, fueled by apps like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and the like, were culturally and economically ascendant and showed no signs of flagging. That was, again, in 2017. Now, in 2021, things are a bit different. Several states have pushed for laws that would make it harder for gig companies to classify some or all of their workers as employees, not independent contractors, a major threat to their entire business models. Leading the way on this front is California, which passed the landmark worker classification law AB5 in 2019, that, however, was followed a year later by Proposition 22, a ballot measure that carved out some big loopholes in AB5. 
To sort all this out, and to sort out what this all means for the once unstoppable future of the gig economy, I rang up Maeve Alsup. She's a Bloomberg Law reporter in San Francisco who covers labor and employment issues. And I started off by asking her what this AB5 bill actually does. Essentially what it did was expand employee status to gig workers, with some exceptions, with a list of exceptions, actually. But it basically requires that companies hiring independent contractors, aside from these exceptions, classify them as workers and set out this test that companies have to pass to classify their workers as independent contractors, um, rather than give them sort of the protections that California law gives to employees. Right. It was called, I think it's called the ABC test, and we'll get to that uh, in a second. But um you know, and so this applied to everyone. This applies to Uber. It applies to, you know, Grubhub, all these different apps that that use people, uh, you know, who sort of log onto the app, work for them, and log off whenever they feel like it. That They're now employees. Right. I think it was particularly aimed at these app-based marketplaces that employed a really large number of people in California. Um which, yeah, is the the handymen, the home tutors, the Uber drivers, the the grocery delivery people, the the people who bring your takeout, that kind of thing. So it does have kind of a broad net. So then uh, that goes into effect uh, at the beginning of last year. And then in November, uh, at the ballot box, the voters uh, approved Prop 22. What, what did that do? Yeah, so Prop 22 um, was a ballot initiative funded by Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. And essentially, it just carves app-based drivers out of AB5. I see. Um, That applies to anyone who uh, uses their car, I guess, in in tandem with an app to do uh, work. Yeah. When we say app-based drivers, like, what do you mean? Yeah. So it's... It's an ongoing discussion, from what I can tell, both in the courts and in companies, exactly who Prop 22 covers. But for the most part, if the work that you're doing is primarily driving, you're you're picking up groceries and dropping them off, you're picking up a person, you're dropping them off, um, that's who Prop 22 covers. If you, you know, drive somewhere to do a service through an app, you're probably not covered by Prop 22 just because you, you have to drive to clean a house or fix a car. Well, and, and the reason, as you mentioned, you know, this uh, Prop 22, the push to, to pass this was funded by Uber and Lyft and, and DoorDash. And the reason why is because, you know, they didn't want to have to be subject to the ABC test. Uh, let's talk about what that is. What are What is A, B, and C? Uh, and I get the sense from your story, it's a very, very high bar uh, for companies to clear. Yeah, I think, it, I think it is a high bar, and I think it's intentionally a high bar. And the three prongs of this test, they kind of speak directly to apps, in my opinion, reading them. Um, So the first prong is that workers have to be free of company control when they're performing these tasks. Um, So again, as far as what exactly that means, I think there's ongoing discussion, but you know, setting rates, setting hours, setting where and when they work, that type of thing, workers have to have uh, complete freedom when it comes to how they do their jobs. So, so to be classified as an independent contractor, they have to be free of company control. That's A. What's B? B is that the worker has to be performing work outside of the usual course uh, of the company's business. And, and that is a hard one 
for companies to meet uh, these kind of app-based service marketplaces. And, and you'll see Uber kind of arguing this point a little bit in misclassification suits as well, saying, you know, our main business is as a, as a marketplace. Our main business is not driving. And these drivers are not performing our main business. We just exist to connect drivers with people who want rides. Okay, that's an uh, interesting argument. Um, <laughs> then what's the C there? So the last prong is that the workers need to be engaged in independent business in that same field. So if you're a mechanic and you have your own mechanic business, but you use this platform to find extra work, you're considered to have work outside of the app. And the uh, companies have to meet A, B, and C to be able to classify their uh, workers as independent contractors. If they don't, at least in the state of California, uh, they are employees and they are entitled to all of the rights and responsibilities that come with being an employee. Is that right? Right. Minimum wage, um, rest breaks, expense reimbursements. And, and what we see a lot in law, in the lawsuits, at least in state court, brought by employees who say you're misclassifying us, is that for these companies, it's, it's a lot of money on the line. Because if the court says you are misclassifying them, then they, they could owe civil penalties for all of the variety of labor laws that they that they might have broken not reimbursing people for whatever business expenses they have uh, not paying them overtime all of those types of things that can really add up to be pricey so as you mentioned you know the thanks to prop 22 companies like uber and lyft and companies that involve uh, uh driving pe- people and things can classify their apps users as independent contractors um, without having to pass the ABC test. But Prop 22 doesn't apply to a lot of other apps. Can you talk about some of these other uh, app-based employment marketplaces uh, that don't enjoy the Prop 22 exemption? Yeah, it's it's kind of a funny question because, you know, there's an app for everything. They even made a commercial about that. Right, so your dog walkers, um, handymen, house cleaners. I think the well-known companies are like TaskRabbit, uh, Rover, Handy. Um, Fuzzy maybe is not as popular outside the Bay Area, but you know, that's essentially a, a drive-by on-demand vet service, right? So all of these companies, that provide whatever service you might need in your life. Um, Many of them are facing lawsuits, uh, at least here in California. Um, And it's really difficult for any of them to argue that they're exempt. So I want to get into that because uh, you wrote about, you talked to a lot of people who said that, you know, not just the, the lawsuits themselves, but the fear of lawsuits, the fear of audits are going to really inject a lot of uncertainty into this business. And also make it harder to get capital funding, get from venture capital firms, which, you know, in your neck of the woods there, Maeve, is uh, kind of the lifeblood that funds uh, all businesses, uh, or at least it seems like that. Um, is this a, a really big problem that could, could sort of cripple the, the, you know, gig economy? It's a good question, and it depends on who you talk to, right? Um, I've talked to sort of management attorneys who say it is a problem, and here's a huge list of due diligence that venture capitalists and companies have to run through now that they didn't have to run through before. They have to consider all sorts of costs, even just potential costs. Even if they're currently using an independent contractor model, they now have to think about 
in the next few years, what would it look like if we did have to start using employees and, and everything that comes along with that. So, um, and, and companies that I've talked to at these companies have said it makes it really hard to know whether we can be viable long-term in California. Um, it makes it harder to get investments. And in some cases, it, it might lower the value of a smaller company um, because those overhead costs could be really high. On the other hand, um, you know, I've talked to uh, researchers and economists who have said, don't panic, this is not the end of the gig economy. There are many ways that this can work. There are a lot of alternatives, subcontracting. Um, the gig economy can work with an employee model. All right, well, that's all I have. Uh, Maeve Alsup uh, in uh, San Francisco, California. Thank you so much for talking with us. Uh, Maeve is a reporter with Bloomberg Law that co- who covers the gig economy. Thanks so much. Law school is great and all, but there are some things that they just don't cover. For example, how do you navigate a criminal trial where, on the courthouse steps, you have to address dozens of TV cameras broadcasting everything you say live on the air? Most criminal law attorneys will probably never be in this situation, but for those that are, it's probably something you can never fully prepare for. That's according to Kristen Gibbons Fedden. She's now an attorney with the Philadelphia law firm Salt, Mongaluzzi, and Bendeski, but perhaps what she's most known for is being one of the team of prosecutors who tried and eventually convicted Bill Cosby of sexual assault in 2018. I spoke with her about the trial in Minneapolis that's currently ongoing that is also subject to total media saturation and about what working on a trial like that was like for her. You know, I had some cases uh, that I had prosecuted that were of a high-profile nature, uh, but they were really just high-profile maybe throughout the state, um, certainly, you know, throughout the county, but definitely not on a national or international uh, scale. So this was the type of case um, in terms of media intervention um, that I was not used to. It certainly, however, was the type of case that I had consistently prosecuted over my years as a prosecutor. So I say that because I walked into this case both throughout the investigation as well as the prosecution, as I do with every sexual abuse case. You know, my focus was on the survivor, offering them compassion, offering them dignity, um, reviewing the evidence in a diligent manner with skill and you know discretion because at the end of the day we do represent the commonwealth of pennsylvania or the state when you were getting ready for the trial was there ever a point where you thought to yourself you know what i just need to focus on what's happening in the courtroom i just need to get a conviction here the stuff that's happening outside will take care of itself or were you always kind of like okay i always need to be cognizant of what's happening after the 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 court is not in session and, you know, the public perception and sort of the, the PR angle of, of the going through the trial? Absolutely. That's an excellent question. Um, you know, I think that I would, as a human being, I was very conscious about um, what was happening outside of the trial, but it was very difficult to balance both. And because my job at that point was, you know, to prosecute this case to the best of my abilities, to within the bounds of my ethics, which is to provide competent and diligent representation to the Commonwealth or the state, um, I had to kind of keep my eye 
on the case in and of itself because there was a lot of negative press that us as the prosecutors were getting. Um, and so just to be able to keep my focus on what was important, um, which was, you know, the pursuit of justice, I did, while initially looking about what has go- what was going on outside, I did have to refocus myself onto the trial and remain there throughout the entirety of the case. Did you ever feel the need to like respond to everything that was said in the press or at least like, you know, uh, most things? Because obviously it would be impossible to respond to everything. But um, did you did you feel like, well, we need to like, you know, I need to to get out there and respond to this? Or were, was it just did you decide like got to stay focused, you know, keep my eyes on the prize? Like what was your your attitude there? My attitude was I wanted to respond to every single comment um, that was made, both you know, what the prosecution case looked like um, that was not necessarily accurate or true or the motives behind the prosecution of Bill Cosby, even to things that, you know, were personal attacks of me um, or even our survivor, um, you know, focusing on me, me being racist or things such as that that are just completely outrageously un- outrageously false. Um You know, I wanted to address all of those things, but I didn't for two reasons. One, you know, again, staying focused is key to successfully prosecuting case. Doesn't always mean you'll win. But at the end of the day, I wanted to make sure that we walked away from that trial, giving it everything that we had. Um, But secondly, as the prosecution, your burdens and your ethical obligations are paramount. And so there was no reason for me to really go out there and kind of um, defend myself. Because again, this case was not about me. This case, even though there were negative attacks on me, it had nothing to do with me. It had to do with what Bill Cosby did um, to Andrea Constan. And there are also other reasons why prosecutors do not want to make public statements um, because it could taint a potential jury pool. It could taint other witnesses, particularly in high profile cases where a prosecutor's statements will be highly publicized. So we wanted to make sure that any narrative of the case remained within the courtroom so as not to taint any potential juror. So it sounds like, based on what you're saying, that you struggled to stay focused, uh, You, but you managed to do it. You wanted to stay focused on the trial, but you also weren't you know, totally shutting yourself out from what was happening. You were aware or monitoring some of the media coverage of the case as well. If you were going to do it, do it again, would you do, the, do it the same way, or would you ha- maybe put, impose a media blackout on yourself? Well... Because this trial was prosecuted twice, I actually did do it again. And the second time around, I blocked out all media coverage. (laughs) Really? Interesting. Okay. So why did you decide to do it differently the second time? I noticed that focusing on anything that was not the trial was not helpful to the trial. Um, Because, you know, in addition to prosecuting that case, I also had another caseload of other cases that I had to prosecute. Um, I also have two children, um, you know, a life outside. And so having to split my focus um, in a limited fashion, it was best for my own sanity, um, as well as the competency that I had to offer to this case to just focus on what was important. And what was important was the case, my family, and my other obligations as a public servant. Got it. That's interesting. All right. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is that, you know, the reason why we're talking is because there's another trial that's happening right now that has just as much, if not more, media attention on it, uh, you know, day-by-day coverage uh, in the press. Um, 
What advice would you give to the prosecutors in the Derek Chauvin case uh, in terms of both, you know, the way that they're managing their their trial, the way that they're managing, um, you know, the 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 victims' families here, uh, and also, you know, the way that they're managing themselves, their self care. Um, you know, as a former prosecutor, now civil litigator slash civil rights attorney. Um, I have to tell you, I think the prosecution is doing a phenomenal job breaking down the case, showing the emotional elements of the case to the jury. Um, What advice would I give them is to continue on the path that they are doing. I think one of the key things that the prosecution is doing a really great job at by calling officer after officer to show that this officer Chauvin and the three others were outliers to the Minneapolis Police Department. And whether or not that's true, that's certainly the perspective that the prosecutors are putting on, put, putting forward through the theme of their case. And I think that that's really important to continue because this case carries with it such larger implications um, than, the, than just the prosecution of Derek Chauvin. This is a case that for many in the public stands for holding police officers accountable for utilizing excessive force. It sounds like uh, you'd also maybe recommend that they uh, they delete Twitter off of their phone. Is that, uh, you know, or maybe other social media apps. Is, is that fair? Absolutely. Just like I said, keep your eyes on the case, not on what's going on outside, not on people who are commenting on the case, and certainly not on... Um, you know, various reactions. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, talking with us. This was really great. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. That was Kristen Gibbons Fedden, an attorney with Saltz, Mongaluzzi, and Badesky, and a former assistant district attorney, speaking from her home in Philadelphia. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz, with special help today from Lisa Hellum. Our editor is Jessica Coombs, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. I'm at David B. Schultz. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. And don't forget to check out Uncommon Law. It is wonderful. Hi, I'm Laura Carlson. And I'm dropping into your feed to tell you about Prognosis, a new daily show from Bloomberg. Monday through Friday, we'll spend a few minutes with you every afternoon to help you understand life in the time of COVID-19. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So come back every afternoon for our coverage and stay safe.